You know, it's stimulating when two giant intellects get together. It's the Marx Brothers Council Podcast, and this is episode number 47, which we're calling Bert and Harry Go West. This is Bob Gassell. Now, you're probably all thinking, hey, wait a minute. I just sat through like 16 hours of you guys talking about Go West, and you're going to do another show about it? Uh, What's the deal here? Well, the truth is, we were all set to record something else. I think it was like a expose and Zeppo's shoe sizes. I forget. But then something happened, and we've decided to change course. Okay? But before we do that, let's meet our co-hosts, Mr. Matthew Conium and Mr. Noah Diamond. How you doing today, gents? You promised me we wouldn't have to talk about Go West anymore. Is this a podcast? I thought it was fungus with buttons. <laughs> That's a good line. Why did you guys pick that line to pick on? It's funny. <laughs> okay, okay. Hold your horses, man. You'll, you'll get your chance. Um, here's what's going on. If you recall, on our last podcast, our deep dive about Go West, we discussed the genesis of the film. It was mentioned that before Irving Brecker got involved and wrote the screenplay, that an earlier version of the script was done by uh, well-known Marx uh, writers and iconic songwriters, uh, Bert Kalmar and Harry Ruby. The script was discarded, but people who have seen it have pretty much agreed that it's much better than what ended up on the screen as the completed film. Well, this apparently struck a nerve in our friend, the acclaimed screenwriter, uh, Scott Alexander, and he decided to dig into this, uh, really dig into this. And Scott turned his findings into a Facebook post, which basically blew the roof off the place, all the amazing stuff he had found. And we just thought it was too important to leave in a measly Facebook group. We wanted to get it out to everyone. So we've brought Scott here today to tell us about what he has found. Scott, welcome back to the show. Well, thanks, gentlemen. It's a pleasure. And an insult. (laughs) I I gotta ask this. What would possess you to just drop everything? You abandon your writing partner, Larry. I think you guys were working on Man on the Moon 2 or something like that. What would possess you to do that? To look into Go West? Um, Honestly, what possessed me was I I had... uh, a free Monday because Larry's son was playing in a band at Prince's nightclub in Minneapolis. And Larry was so excited that he flew to Minneapolis for the show on a, on that night. So, um, I had a free day. So I, I emailed, uh, emailed the library and I, I set up a meeting and I, I think I pulled 13 documents and I spent the afternoon there. Um, the Motion Picture Academy runs a, a, a wonderful library called the Margaret Herrick. Uh, our friend Joe Adamson worked there for many, many years. I mean, anybody who's ever written any kind of a book about the history of cinema uh, has to find themselves in that building at some point. Sort of my, my motivation was that I've always just been a giant Calmer and Ruby fan. You know, their names show up on all, on all the good stuff. And, 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 and they have the, the amazing ability to be screenwriters and to be songwriters which is pretty incredible. Mm-hmm. And uh, you can correct me if I'm wrong. They got their names on, on Animal Crackers, Horse Feathers, and Duck Soup. Is, is that it? Am I forgetting? 
Well, uh, technically, their names are in the credits of uh, Night in Casablanca because sure, of the who's, song Who's, who's Sorry, sorry now? now. Yeah, yeah. Well, that doesn't count. All right. Fine. Nah. They, didn't, they didn't work on the movie. Um, no. Nah. And then, and then knowing that there was this history that uh, MGM had brought them over to to write a Marx Brothers movie, and then it, and then it got discarded and turned into one of the most uh, hated Marx Brothers movies was just kind of sad <laughs> and frustrating, and so I wanted to sort of dig in and kind of figure out what happened. Okay, now I got to do this before we continue on. Scott, tell us what you really think about Go West. Oh God, I mean. I mean, uh, I, you you guys were too mean on the podcast, but I, I yeah I did rewatch it and whatever all, all all three of those MGM movies are so frustrating. I I I totally defend the opening scene, which you guys were too mean to. Um, I, I I think it's 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 first rate. Uh, it's first rate B B fun as opposed to A plus fun. Um, I think the guys are all in great form. I think it's got lots of fun. You guys didn't even talk about the. Uh, it was a pigeon. No, it was green. It was a frog. It had numbers. That was its license plate. I mean, you guys didn't even mention that on the on the podcast. Those, that, those are funny lines. <laughs> well, that, we didn't mention that one, but there, I think there are are uh, uh, there's a good number of good lines in that scene. I think I might have been a little more positive about that scene than than Bob and Matthew. But um, I don't know about that license plate joke. It, oh, so okay. so. Well, again, <laughs> it, it goes back to when I was ten. I'm one of those kids who saw that triple feature in a movie theater, you know, for the, when I saw the films for the first time. Circus Go West in the big store. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, the you know, like 1974, 75. Those were those were the golden years, baby. <laughs> and um, my parents took me, and um, it was sort of like a it was like a grindhouse situation where they were just like running the triple feature like round the clock. I, th- I mean, I, the Marx films were so popular. And I remember walking in on the train scene. It's sort of like we got there, we got there 15 minutes early before, before Big Big Star was going to begin. And I just remember walking in and saying, "This is like one of the greatest things I've ever seen in my life." I walked in on the shot of the train, uh, the, the the train with the house driving through Harpo, where he's he pops through the doorway. That very Keaton-esque joke. And um, and I sort of I was watching it, and then I I did an amazing thing for a kid, which was. I'm not going to deprive myself of the proper experience. And I stepped out of the auditorium. So I, I, I wasn't going to like walk in with only eight minutes left in a movie, even though I could see, my God, this is so great. So, um, you know, I, I, I enjoyed it then. Um, whatever. I, 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 I really enjoy that, that opening train station scene, though it is, it is blocked. It is blocked like, like, like vaudeville with three guys standing in front of a curtain. I mean, uh, uh, can't say much for the direction of that scene. Um, I mean, you don't, you don't even really even need to have a set. They could just have a wall behind them. Um, and the train scene is wonderful. Um, it's probably hard to think of some nuggets in between the beginning and the end. None are, none are coming to mind. Uh, no, 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 definitely not that one. Um, oh, Oh, I, I, one other joke, um, which you, you you guys didn't appreciate enough, which is when Harpo pull, pulls out the shovel and starts like, uh, he's going to be shoveling gold off the streets. Well, he goes there like that. They're going to be shoveling him off the streets. I mean, that, that's that's good stuff. Yeah, what, whatever. Yeah, you know, despite how much I joke about it, of course there are laughs and good things in the film. I'm not denying that. But it's 
to me at least, it's the exception rather than the rule. And the best marks scenes in films build and build and build one great moment on top of another. Here you're just sort of sitting through lame stuff to get to the occasional good line or good gag. And, you know, I, I want more than that. You're, you're right. Uh, and, and honestly, uh, I mean, I've, I've been prepping here with paper. I haven't been prepping while watching the movie because we're not really here to talk about the movie. So I, I can't think of anything else I love okay. between the beginning and the end. Okay. All right. I just wanted to get all that on the record. So okay. you, you could pick it up wherever you want here, Scott. Okay. Um, yeah. So I, I went to the library and I really, I just wanted to know, you know, if there were connections between the Calmer and Ruby work and, and the movie that we have. And, and then I wanted to know if it, if it was better or, or if the, they deserve to be thrown in a ditch and replaced by Brecker and then all these other names that turned up in my research. And I, and, and, you know, and the sad, the sad answer was that, yes, their script is infinitely superior to the movie. And it is definitely the foundation of the movie. This movie was made right before the Writers Guild took over credits on movies. I mean, I think it's like like five seconds before. I, I think the WGA started in 41, if I have my history right. And so before that, uh, credits were, um, to, to make a pun, the Wild West. Credits were just, uh, you know, you know the, the, the cliche is, you know, the brother-in-law of the, uh, the no good brother-in-law of the studio head who, could, who couldn't get a job would, would get his name as a writing credit. And it was really just at the discretion of the producers in the studio. I, I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't really understand it. I, I would actually think that Calm and Ruby, because they're connected to, to really good ones, the studio would want their name on it. Or maybe Calm and Ruby were just so sick of the whole thing that they just said, we don't even care. But I mean, there, there's a lot in the, in the, in these treatments in these scripts that shows up in, in the movie. The key difference, just to, just to jump in here, is uh, Go West is a period piece. Calm and Ruby is not. But basically, once you get past uh, the opening 30 seconds, it kind of feels like the same period. You know, the bad guy runs a saloon in an old West town and there's, you know, people with shovels digging, digging for gold. And everyone's a, everyone's a cowboy and people, people ride horses and carry guns. And, and uh, it, just, it has the vibe of a Western. I mean, the, the calmer, the calmer Ruby scripts are, are not perfect. Uh, I'll sort of I'll sort of discuss sort of bring bringing my screenwriting chops to it. I, I can I can read all their drafts and I can interpret what happened and and how things went south. Um, but e even with with the with the final result, which is which is not perfect or at the level of their Paramount work, it's so much better than than the movie uh, we ended up with. Um, Margaret Dumont has a major major part. Uh, she's all over the film. Mm -hmm. She shows up in circus, but I've always thought sort of her um, appearance in that sort of felt more like Groucho doing a contractual obligation with MGM, like you got to shove her in there because she's she's not on the train and she's not at the circus, and she just sort of shows up in her bedroom like in the last twenty minutes in the movie, uh, which is a little weird be because everyone remembers the Margaret Dumont stuff, but she's barely barely a factor in that film. Also, Calmer and Ruby uh, do throw in the non sequiturs. And the surrealism and and just a, a, there's a bit of weirdness um, that is that is really joyful because uh, you can certainly see that stuff upsetting MGM. They they, they don't like non sequiturs. Mm -hmm. MGM likes things to make sense. 
they must have wondered why why do they keep hire, why does MGM keep hiring us if then you know because they worked on opera um yeah. you know they they had there was some involvement with with the big store at an early stage um and it and it never it never gets yeah. to the screen i mean why why did MGM keep asking them back if if it didn't want what they had to offer i'm not aware specifically what they did on other projects but what did they do matthew well, they 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 did an, they did early drafts or early treatments of opera, um, and a version of the big store. Mm. I think I'm right in saying. Um, I yeah. don't know if they were involved yeah. with races, or although there's there's stuff in this film that that in this script um, that recalls material in races, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. Um, just so we're clear to the listeners, um, what what I looked at uh, at the at the academy. Uh, were three Coleman Ruby treatments from 1936, which uh, uh, I believe would have been from before they started shooting Day at the Races. Yeah, all under Thalberg. So, so, so August 36, which is the last treatment, that's before. When does races start shooting? I think it was right at the start of September. All right, so they've got three drafts, three drafts from the summer of 1936. So that would have been uh, while... Day at the Races was prepping and starting to shoot. So this was not going to be the film after Night of the Opera. Though, though it's, it's sort of intriguing that um, MGM was paying for, for more Marx Brothers ideas while Day at the Races was about to start shooting. Mm. So MGM really was very high on Marx's. Uh, and the, then the, they, make, they make races, they, they go over to RKO, and then they, and then they come back with their three-picture deal. Um, so then Bert and Harry get rehired in 1939. The Academy had four drafts from April through the last one I saw was November 18th, 1939. That was the biggest surprise for me, actually, that they, that they were still involved at, at that late, that later stage in 39. I thought they were just around in, you know, 35, 36. And then their old stuff was just picked up and dusted down by Brecker. It's fascinating that they're still actually um, on the payroll in 39. Well, I mean, they, they, I mean, screenwriters get paid a little bit for treatments. Screenwriters get paid a lot more for scripts. Um, so, um, though, I, you know, this is, this is the golden era of, of, of the studio system. And if, if you're, if you're on, if you're on a weekly, which most writers were, I could be talking out of my, out of my ass, but, I mean, certainly, certainly now studios can save money by just testing the water by only paying for a treatment. So MGM now has a three-picture deal, and and they're going to have to come up with a whole bunch of marks, marks malarkey. So they, uh, they, I'm going to say they rehire Bert and Harry to now write a script based upon their um, their treatment from three years earlier. And the Academy has a lot of different versions of each manuscript, and some of them are clean and some of them have annotations. And I got really excited thinking, oh, my God, it's like, you know, it's Harry Ruby scribbling all over the script. This is really cool. It ended up being sort of a, uh, a headache to read because you just don't – because it has scribbles all over it. Um, also, um, I'm actually unfamiliar with reading working scripts from this era. I mean, you know, when I was in film school, they would give us the final script. Oh, here's the script to Big Sleep. You know, here's the script to Sunset Boulevard. But if you're reading um, intermediate scripts, I mean, I guess with the old steno pool days and, and, and there's no computers. And so people would just, Bert and Harry would just type an exchange 
uh, between uh, Dumont and Groucho, and then they would come up with a funnier exchange. So they would just like type X's over it, and then just retype the exchange again. And and so it it sort of becomes a bit of a chore to get through it. My big takeaway from my library day was that Bert and Harry were at their best when they could just play in the sandbox. And mm-hmm. my and 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 and, I, and I'm reading into this as a working screenwriter and knowing how how the sausage is made. Um, the treatments get better and better as they go along, which I just I, I found really interesting. So I'm going to say they weren't being supervised that closely because they're probably not being paid that much to do a treatment, and so they're just they're just screwing around. There's a lot of paramount surrealism. There's a lot of weirdness. They'll throw stuff in, and then on the next pass, they never take good jokes out. They just keep – it's all additive. They keep adding more jokes. And so by that last treatment, it's really a lot of fun. And as you mentioned earlier, Thalberg and MGM were probably so focused on getting races up and running that they didn't give a second thought to what uh, Kalmar and Ruby were doing back there. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, totally, totally. I mean, the ti- the timeline is – it, the race is, is in prep, and it's a big, fat, expensive movie. And, and who, who, you know, Thalberg and his team are very focused on, on getting races up and running, and they're, and they're focused on building that water carnival. You know, they, they, they've got a lot on their mind. They've got to fill that water tank. You know, they, this is, you know they've got to call Culver City and get all that water sent over. So, yeah, they're probably not paying, paying attention. Now, what happens with the scripts uh, sadly, and and I, I I I've been there. Is you turn in a first draft, and the first draft is your best work. Your first draft is unimpeded by other people's opinions. It's just it's what you think is just freaking crazy and funny. And they turn it in, and then it starts getting diluted and watered down, and some of the weirder stuff gets starts getting taken out. And then more girl scenes and boy scenes start showing up. And then more bad guys plotting start showing up. And things start making more sense, which is less fun. And it's really, it's a demoralizing process. And, you know, it's, it's, this isn't news to anyone who has studied Hollywood. It's just the development game. And it's why it's really hard for original comedy that's outside the box in, term, in modern terminology, to, to get through the system. It's why so much lame comedy gets made. Because jokes by their definition don't make sense. The, the password scene. Why, why, why do the guys keep forgetting what the password is? Why do they keep letting themselves get locked out of their, the saloon they were standing in five seconds earlier? This, the scene doesn't make sense, but that's why it's funny. Something about the new script, I mean, we always accuse Brecker of picking for scraps from the earlier, greater ones, and then repurposing jokes and scenes to lesser effect. But I, I got to say, Harry, Harry and Bert are doing a lot of the same stuff, but they're sort of doing it under MGM rules. And I don't know, it's a really fine line. When the guys are doing the password scene, I'm charmed by it. When there's similar scenes in, in this Go West script, I just feel like they're being stupid. And, I, and it, it's hard to put my finger on it where I'm getting frustrated with Groucho, saying, Groucho, you're too smart to be this dumb. Mm. I mean, I, we'll, we'll, t- we'll talk about it later, but you know, there, there, there's, this, there's a shameless repurposing of the Tootsie Fruitsie scene, and 
uh, which uh, Tootsie Fruits is, is even questionable. I what I loved it. I loved that scene when I was twelve and in my junior high school. I performed it, you know, at a school assembly. It, it didn't play too well, but that, that's a, neither here nor there. <laughs> um, I, the, the miking was terrible. It was, it was an outdoor. It was an outdoor stage in the in the quad. What do you want from me? If you didn't have the crew on your side, Scott. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, people were throwing frisbees. It was lunch hour. It was a, it was a terrible booking. Um, but the, the, the Tootsie Fruity scene is walking right up to the line of, of Groucho being stupid. And, but but, but they, they, they get away with it. Something about all the, all the later movies, you sort of feel like they've crossed over into Groucho becoming what I call MGM dumb. And I, I don't know if you guys want to talk about this, like what it is about that fine line where he's now MGM dumb. Well, at Paramount, when he's not caring about the plot line, it doesn't matter whether he does something for or against his own self-interest because he doesn't really care. But at MGM, when supposedly he is somewhat vested in, in the story and he does something against his own self-interest, I guess it comes across as dumb. I thought, and uh, we might mention that um, since we recorded our Go West episode, our last episode, uh, thanks to uh, numerous thoughtful and generous listeners, uh, Bob and Matthew and I have also gotten a glimpse at a Kalmar and Ruby draft of Go West, uh, a mid-November 1939 draft. So anything we talk about from that script is just from that one draft. We haven't seen as much material as you have, Scott. But I I think... In a way, it's a little depressing having known about the existence of these Kalmar and Ruby drafts of Go West for so long and having this fantasy that there's this paramount level Marx Brothers Go West script out there somewhere. Um, it's not really that, is it? It's, it's, as you say, Scott, I think it's clearly better than the finished film, and I wish that it had been the script that they went into production with, but it's very MGM-y. I mean, Kalmar and Ruby are clearly on assignment and working within MGM's rules. You're right, there's a lot of repurposing of older material, um, and some of the new stuff is great, but I don't think if, if it hadn't been signed, I don't think I would have read it and said, oh, this feels more like horse feathers. Their first script from the spring of 39 was terrific. And by the time they're done, uh, it's Thanksgiving 39, and they've done a lot of drafts through the entire year. So MGM has run them through the ringer. Uh, their first right. draft was inspired. Uh, yeah, I was. Just, I mean, I agree with Noah that that in the, the script that we've seen, um, obviously it is better than the than the film that we have. But a lot of it is is kind of dopey stuff. But the what what I do think is absolutely Paramount vintage is virtually every um, Groucho Dumont uh, sequence. There's about three of them, um, and the dialogue in those is 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 really you know as good as anything and i and uh, for instance um lines like if you don't want to have anything to do with me you've come to the right man yeah. <laughs> yeah. and uh, yeah. what am i doing here this is my sweet your sweet yes my mm. sweet ah mm. my sweet you know that's really nice the mm. minute the minute i set eyes on you something snapped within me and i've been wearing a belt ever since yes <laughs> i wasn't born yesterday or i wouldn't be wearing these clothes um, yeah. <laughs> Mr. Hackenbush, you take my breath away. Take your own breath away. What am I, an errand boy? Uh, we might as well say in this draft, uh, Groucho is Quincy P. Hackenbush. Yes, um, very strange. The, the P stands for patience. 
the names are weird because they, uh, there's uh, Harpo is Pinky yeah. and, and and Chico is Ravelli, which is suspiciously close to another name. He, in fact, he is Antonio Giuseppe Luigi Ravelli. <laughs> I'll, 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 work, I'll work my way through, but the first script was a nice B+. Plus. Um, mm-hmm. The guys are con men, they're liars, they, they barely give a shit about the young lovers. Um, just to taunt the listeners of this podcast, we meet Chico as a Sangru the Hindu mystic. <laughs> A fake fortune teller at a carnival. I mean, come on, it's Chico stealing money from, from little old ladies who, who want to know their future. And then every time he says, oh, I hear something in your future. And then you, and then you cut behind the tent and, and it's, it's Harpo back there creating the sound effects. And, the, and then as the scene goes along, it's Calm and Revere Smart Guys. Then Harpo starts getting mixed up and confused. And then he's, 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 he's doing the wrong needle drops and he's playing the wrong sound effects. And, and the woman's getting confused. Wait, wait, I, I thought you said I would be by a body of water. You know, why am I hearing a train? You know, and he says, well, because you're getting, you're, you're about to get on a train. And then you hear, she says, well, that sounds more like a boat, you know, you know, and Harpo's just like tangled up in the backstage. I mean, this, this is good stuff. Yeah, that survives in, into the script that we read, at least in some form. And uh, I agree that stuff is good. And it has a great sort of uh, additional clause, which becomes like a button, that after creating all these false audio backdrops for Chico's fortune-telling scam, turns out Harpo actually can see the future in this crystal ball. Uh, and it's such a great, um, it's the great point of Harpo being capable of real magic. Yeah, very strange bit where he sees a, a, a girl, doesn't he? A girl dancing. Yeah, who, yeah, yeah. Who he then chases away, which is um, something he doesn't normally do by this point. <laughs> yeah. yeah. The Burton Harry plot is is just strikingly similar to the plot of, of the, the Finnish 1940 movie and all their versions. You know, the final movie is about a bunch of people fighting over a deed to Dead Man's Gulch, which was in the girl's family three generations ago, and they've been trying to find it or get it back ever since. As opposed to Burton Harry, uh, it's not a deed; it, it's a map, and the, and the, and 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 it's not Dead Man's Gulch; it's Lost Gulch, and uh, and um, it, and the map has been torn in half, and um, to almost laborious results at times. Uh, the the two halves of the map keep getting passed around between good guys and bad guys, and every time somebody thinks they've reassembled the map, they lose the other half, and it it happens too many times to be funny. Um, <laughs> But the the similarity in the in the plots just sort of make my head spin. Going, I don't know why it doesn't say you know co screenplay by Burton Harry or at least story by Burton Harry. Um, now, Scott, in this in the material that you read, I, I was struck in the in the draft that that we were able to read how, although the plot is very close to the finished film, there's almost no material like specific jokes or bits that survived into the finished film. Did you encounter more of that kind of thing in your reading? More stuff that did wind up on film? Um, well, I mean, we've got the breaking into the safe. Uh, the breaking- Yeah, there's things like that, like plot details, but not specific gags and jokes. Uh, specific gags and jokes, um, I think you would be correct. It's interesting, isn't it? Because there's yeah. some good ones in here. Hmm. I would say there's conceptual. Uh, Harpo needs to break into the saloon owner's safe to steal the deed or and or the the map. 
and Groucho and Chico are going to distract the bad guys from finding Harpo, who's cracking the safe. And so in the in the in the movie, Groucho and Chico are are, um, are in the next room. Uh, in the, in Bert and Harry, uh, Groucho and Chico are downstairs at a piano, and um, and Chico's supposed to send Harpo a signal if bad guys show up. But I, know, I see what Noah means. I mean, you do get the feeling, don't you, that, that, that Brecker has gone to these scripts for ideas, um, but he, he, he seems to have very consciously not pilfered lines. You are correct. Jokes. You are correct. Why is that? Did he think he was better? Was he trying? <laughs> was, he, was he obsessed with getting a, a sole screenplay credit and he didn't want to use any jokes? Mm, I wonder. Yeah, if, if he were being not selfish i mean you would think like oh oh my god you know uh chico reading fortunes this is this is good this is good stuff mm. why yeah. not use it yeah going back to calmer and ruby they 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 do a, they do a lot of riffing on the tropes which which can get frustrating in that you go okay that's tootsie fruity okay that's the scene where the guy uh, harp and chico are knocking on on the on the front door of dumont's house is this a, is this a uh, uh, this is maybe a, a Noah question? Is this is a reflection upon the Marx's historical background, and they came up through vaudeville, you know, repeating the same act year after year, and and at a certain point, there's only ten Marx scenes you can write. Yeah, that's possible. Uh, I don't know though. It doesn't. I mean, and again, I, I this draft I've seen is apparently not the the best of the Kalmar and Ruby go West material. So take it with that grain of salt. But to me at its best, I thought there are some great exchanges and gags in this script that ring very true. If you love the Paramount Marx brothers, but considering that it was written by Kalmar and Ruby, it feels kind of like what happens in the MGM films. They're sort of borrowing the best of what they had done before. Uh, there's an exchange I, I, I took a note of, um, Groucho says to Chico, how much would you charge to make a parachute jump without a parachute? All right, that's, uh, uh, if you just, it's like Mad Libs. You could change the nouns and make a different Groucho line yeah. from, I think, Duck Soup. And Chico's answer is, you couldn't afford it, which is right out of Animal Crossing. It was a late, but even the parachute joke wasn't very good. Yeah. I winced at that joke. At another point, he tells him... Uh, uh, there's a line about a mouse. You've got the brain of a mouse, and he's been looking for it. You know, well, it's the four-year-old child joke from Duck Soup. Yes, it is. Uh, an amazing amount of that stuff. There's also really surprising to me in an exchange between the young lovers uh, who are named Sally and Eddie. Yeah. This draft, anyway. And uh, Sally says uh, Eddie is a singer, much like Alan Jones uh, in, in Night at the Opera before him and races. Uh, Sally says, you got a job, Eddie, $25 a week for singing at the Crystal Palace. And Eddie says, I could understand them paying me that for not singing. Wow. It's like, oh, well, yes, getting paid for not, not playing. That's, mm. We've been there before, but the Marx Brothers should be talking about that. Uh, you are correct, sir. Just to back up to the beginning, in Coleman Ruby's very, very first treatment is pure surrealism. The movie takes place in this very strange Nevada town that's become well-known for easy divorces. And so every woman in America who wants a quickie divorce, it's the divorce capital of the, of the country, has come to this town. And we open in the middle of a dance number. And Groucho is this, is this sleazy divorce lawyer 
who's basically just running from, this is page one, running from woman to woman trying to say, I, I can get you a divorce in, in, you know, in six hours. He's going from one to another, and then he ends up running into Mrs. Van Alstein, and uh, which is Margaret Dumont, who has come to Nevada to secure a divorce. And this is the opening of the movie. The opening of the movie is he's, he's just this sleazy criminal lawyer, and and you know, and then and then he crashes her suite, and then and then we're we're doing the sweet the sweet puns, and and we're we're off to the races, right out of the gate. I mean, the the movie is weird right at the beginning. I would really like to know the story of why it was changed from a contemporary setting to a period piece. Was that a Brecker thing, or was that a studio deal? I had always assumed that the success of Way Out West had at least something to do with it, but. Calmar and Ruby's scripts two years later were still in a contemporary uh, setting, so that's obviously not the case. I mean, in, in the later scripts, they uh, fool you into thinking you're in the Old West, and then, they, and then a bunch of cars drive into frame, and you realize you're at Old West Day. Mm. Yeah. The early drafts don't don't bother with that, and then all all the treatments and every every Calmar Ruby script ends up with a with a friggin' rodeo, and I, uh, mm. for the life of me, <laughs> the rodeo is. Uh, I, I read like seven or eight rodeo versions, and it's <laughs> not funny. And it's so much like the end of Day at the Races as well. Yeah, yeah, but I don't even know what's even at stake. I, I mean, in some versions, Groucho ends up riding on a on a on a on a, on a bull, or Groucho's stunt doubles <laughs> on a bull, and Chico's stunt double is on a cow, and and Harpo's on a on a on a bucking horse. His stuntman is on a mm. bucking horse, and I, I just don't even <laughs> yeah. understand what the stakes are, why they're doing this and why it's funny. In some versions it's being cross cut with a, with a car chase. I, I, I just don't even know what's happening. And I, sh- I um, should just say, I got, I got told off for swearing in the last one. So I just want to stress that what Scott just said was a bucking horse. <laughs> it was a bucking horse. <laughs> I'm assuming that they were being encouraged to keep this rodeo ending though. But for the life of me, uh, again, just as, as a screenwriter, you know, you you always want to go out, go out on a high, and and every single draft ends with this dumb rodeo, which go to me goes out on a big fat low. I mean, it's not it's not the train from Go West, it's not the football game from right. Horseville. It's just it's just not anything. It's just mm. it's just horses running in a circle. I just don't, I don't get it. Yeah, it makes me wonder if maybe this was a particular thing that Kalmar and Ruby were especially ill-suited to, you know. Uh, we don't know how much they had to do with devising the climax of horse feathers um, and duck soup, for that matter. But I I can't think of very many of these kind of comedy action sequences that have much to do with Kalmar and Ruby. Mm. Yeah, though they certainly uh, stuck with it. It's in every draft. Um, sometimes it's more elaborate. Sometimes, sometimes it's... 20 pages sometimes it's 10 pages i, I, mean, I wonder if maybe they were told they were told that that it has to end at a at a rodeo maybe it, yeah i mean it, it's weird because they're they're writing the script while races is in is going into production with a with a big horse ending mm. so I, I i i would think the studio would say give us something that doesn't have a horse for the uh, climax it's definitely not their forte, that sort of thing. They're, they're, they're much more no. kind of dialogue stuff. I mean, going back to what you said about the um, that that scene with 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 Groucho as the as the quickie divorce lawyer, that that survives into the the draft that that we saw, but but it's it's shunted to much later on into the film after interminable minutes of of uh, you know romantic 
and plot nonsense. Um, but there, there is one other sequence which you mentioned uh, in your post, Scott, which is, uh, I think, apart from the, the Groucho Dumont scenes, the, the most paramountish moment in the script that, that I read, which is the scene where uh, Chico and Groucho start throwing things out of the window. Yeah, yes. Yeah, um, it, it's it's a lot of fun. It's, I mean, it, it, it is, okay, we're going to, we're going to, we're going to riff on Wyatt Duck, but we're going to physicalize the scene. And so it's, it's, it's Groucho and Chico sitting in Groucho's office and, um, and they've got half the map and they realize every time they get half the map, the other half of the map ends up in the bad guy's pocket and they've given up. They say, we're, we're never going to get to that, that gold mine. And so Chico or Groucho, I different versions. uh, one, One of them throws it out the window and then Chico says, well, well, if we don't have the mind, then, we, then we're not going to have to write about the mind. And so then he throws Groucho's typewriter out the window. And then, and then Groucho says, well, if, if I don't have a typewriter, then I'm not going to have to hire as, I'm not going to have a secretary. And Chico says, okay. And then he, and, and then he picks up the, the secretary's chair and he carries it over the window, but the window isn't open large enough. And then the moment that I, I laughed out loud in the library was Groucho goes over and opens the window further to help Chico throw yes. the chair out the window which is it's so great it's it, it's that's it's, what you want yeah. it's what you want it, it's yeah. like well well wait i'm gonna have to walk through your room to get to the maid's room it's it you know it's it's that stuff where, where gracho is fully engaged in chico's you know just weird hypothetical craziness um and and then it continues it's like well if we don't have one chair the other chair looks out of place because they were a set you know, and, yeah. and, and then the second chair gets thrown out the window. And, and so it's, it's fun. It's fun. It's a, it's a scene that has absolutely no point except being, being weird and funny. Oh, yeah. One thing I wanted to point out that I really like is that with Chico and Harpo in particular, the other characters in the film don't treat them like morons. They're not like, get out of my way, you dope, and shrugging at them. I mean, they're treated with a little bit of respect, which... Which I really like. Uh, yeah, I, I mean, uh, where, where, where Groucho gets MGM dumb, um, uh, in, in every version, uh, there's there's a roulette scene. Um, in, in one of the versions I read, it was all three brothers, which made me go, oh my God, it's not in Casablanca. They, they needed $10,000 from Margaret Dumont so they can buy half the map off the Indian chief. I, a sentence that'll never be repeated by any other human being <laughs> until the world ends. But Margaret Dumont is, is skeptical, so she'll only give him five thousand. So they've got the five thousand, but they need the ten thousand. So Chico says, "I have a I have a surefire system for doubling your money at roulette." A system, huh? And so they go and play roulette, and Chico's system is is simply Groucho puts all puts his money on black seventeen, and then the ball goes around, and then when no one's looking, Chico then slides the pile of chips to a different number, so red twenty four. And then, and then, of course, you know, it lands on black seventeen. And then Groucho's like, "You dummy!" He says, "Well, my system will work. My system isn't perfect, but it works better as, you, as it goes along." And then they just keep doing the bit, where Groucho keeps yeah. betting on the right number, and Chico keeps moving the chips to the wrong number. And by the end of the bit, Groucho has no money. And I, 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 I wanna, I wanna like the sequence, but Groucho is just being too dumb. Yeah, I'm with you. I'm, I'm with you on that. I also am with Bob on the idea that there's not as much hapless, dopey Marx Brothers behavior here as as there is in the, the last three MGMs. It's like the auction sequence in Coconuts. I mean, Chico has his own convoluted logic or 
understanding of the situation. That's the way I'm, I'm, I tend to look at it. Well, well, the, well the, the auction scene is so great because uh, Groucho hired Chico to help him, and then Chico's just destroying yeah. Groucho's plans, and Groucho yeah. is helpless to stop him. But, it, but in this scene, Groucho keeps – he just keeps putting the chips down, and, and I, I keep saying, Groucho, just walk, walk away from the table. <laughs> And that scene with the the lost property uh, bureau, you know, where where Chico keeps uh, playing different, you know, and, and Groucho sort he sort of sees what's going on, but he doesn't he doesn't have any kind of smart reaction to it. He he just yeah yeah. Chico steals Groucho's bag. Groucho shows up at the lost and found, and the lost and found uh, is a little booth, and then surprise, Chico Marks pops up from the booth and says, "How can I help you, Mister? I'm looking for a black bag. Is it this one?" Yeah, well, that'll be 75 cents. Well, you just took it from me two minutes ago. Well, you can take it up with the Information Bureau. Well, where's that? It's across the way. And Groucho goes over to the Information Bureau, and then Chico Marks pops up. How can I help you? Uh, well, I'm here to complain about the lost and found. And, 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 and Chico ends up like, it's sort of like a Green Acres joke, where Chico just <laughs> keeps popping up like in different hats at like six different booths. I want to love it, but Groucho's being really stupid. Some of that kind of stuff, also the jailbreak scene, similarly, I, I, I did think while reading it that, you know, when you read early drafts of uh, Duck Soup, I'll choose Duck Soup because it's also Calmar and Ruby, you know, you read the fire, uh, the uh, grasshoppers and cracked ice early drafts of Duck Soup, and there are sequences written in there that you can recognize from the finished film that really did get improved a lot, either in subsequent drafts or perhaps on the set. And we know that that's generally true of Marx Brothers screenplays in general. So it's possible that some of the scenes that we are kind of feeling like, ah, we want to like them, there's something there, but it doesn't quite come off. If they had filmed the Kalmar and Ruby screenplay, maybe it would have flowered in practice. Also, they, they would have taken some, at least some of this material on tour and refined it there, yeah. too. And perhaps found the director to have gotten the most out of the material. Yeah. As opposed to Buzzle, who got the least out of it. Yes. Yeah, it, 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 it took me a few weeks to, to finally figure out the jailbreak scene. Gra okay, get it right. Groucho Chico and the young lover boy are thrown in jail, and it's a, it's a, it's a basement jail. So there's a high window and the high window is, is, is the sidewalk outside. Good Harpo stuff. He shows up, you know, with buzzsaws and, and welding equipment and all sorts of craziness so he can cut through the bars. He cuts through the bars and then, um, I don't remember who gets out first. Maybe it's young like Harpo. you can only get out if there's someone there to help you. So the last person left can never escape. So someone has to be lifted out the window. And um, and every time the, they, 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 they run through the three guys, lifting them out the window, someone gets left behind. And so then and it's it's very reminiscent of knocking at the door in Duck Soup. Um, someone will then jump back into the jail to lift out the guy who got stuck. And then he'll realize, wait, now I'm stuck. Hmm. The scene could have been great. It, it might be the, the Groucho participation that makes me question it. Chico and Harpo are always kind of happy to get caught up in their own weirdness kind of oblivious yeah. that to how the real world functions groucho is usually more hip to that kind of stuff and to just like physical behavior and gravity he tends to understand that better than they do and so the fact that groucho jumps back down into the into the uh into the jail cell a couple of times to lift out the remaining person then groucho realizes he's stuck maybe undermines mm -hmm. it for me but it could have been funny it could have been funny 
there's also a, a big scene which is a, a return to the uh, the detective in Night at the Opera. Groucho's office has a Murphy bed, which is the size of four king-size beds, which is, that would be a very large bed. And, it, and it's a Murphy yeah, bed wow. that flies up into the wall and then it turns into a bookshelf. And uh, it, it, it's a sequence where the guys are hiding and then there's a knock at the door and the bad guy comes in. And so they all have to like jump into the, into the Murphy bed and then Groucho has to like, make it fly into the wall. And then the bad guy comes in and says, didn't I hear a bunch of voices? I don't think so. Um, well, there's four coats hanging on the coat hack. Well, I get cold at night. You know, it, it's, it's, it's that kind of stuff. And then and then he leaves and then Groucho lowers the Murphy bed and all the guys come out. And then the bad guy knocks at the door again. He's like, oh, I forgot my hat. And so they all have to like jump into the bed again. And it, 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 it's, a, it's a fun bit. It, it, is, a, it is a rehash, but it, it, it would have been funny. That's the thing that I found most interesting reading this script is, is that it seems to look backwards and forwards at the same time. I think because of the very unusual circumstance that um, opera and races and this film and the big store were all sort of being tentatively um, written or, or devised at around the same time. There are all kinds of things that, that turn up. You know, there, there, as we've said, there are things that, 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 that uh, seem rather like races and seem rather like opera. And then there are also moments like this, which will then turn up in the big store. And there's even a reference to, to Dewey capturing Manila um, yes, yeah, in, in yeah. the script. Yes. Um, so with that in mind, the thing that really struck me, and I don't know if any of you spotted it, is there is uh, a proper extended comedy sequence in this script involving Harpo and some pigeons. Yeah, yeah. That is true. I wonder if that is connected with the missing race's mysterious line down in the room with those pigeons. <laughs> I thought it was interesting in terms uh, speaking of references that found their way in and that you can use to place the script in time uh, that there in the draft we've read, there's a wizard of Oz reference. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Eddie, the male ingenue says, we're off to see the wizard, the financial wizard. Uh, this script is dated like three months after the release of the wizard of Oz. That's weird. I mean, if, 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 if we want to like dig into the minutia with, with, with the dates of this material, they were writing their, their treatment, while Date the Races was being prepped, but as far as I know, Dahlberg did not have the brothers signed to another film at that point in their contract, correct? Wasn't it a two-picture contract? Yeah, I think yeah. that's right. Well, well, maybe I'm off here, but my understanding is that it was a personal services deal with Thalberg as opposed to MGM, and that maybe they would have moved on to, a, to another studio together, maybe like United Artists. Okay, okay, I, I, I'm just pointing out that he's planning on, mm -hmm. on having a, a, a long relationship with these guys. Yeah. I think there was talk about a baseball film. Was that then, too? Oh, I haven't heard about that. That would be for Kelmar and Ruby to write. Uh, sure. Right? Ruby, in particular, was a huge baseball fan, right? Yeah. yeah. Hey, let's talk about, for a minute, what happened to, to Margaret Dumont. Uh, I seem to recall, once again, I'm relying on memory, I seem to recall that she wanted to distance herself from the Marxes because their film career was coming to an end and she wanted to uh, expand her horizons. I don't know. She just disappeared. What, what's your guess as to what happened here? 
it, it's very interesting, isn't it? That 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 they did write the character out rather than recast it. Yeah. I mean, it shows just how uh, you know it was her or nothing for that role. Right. Yeah, it, it, I mean, it's weird uh, in in terms of the Calma Ruby and the, and the Brecker scripts lining up. I mean, you you've got the girl whose family had 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 the fortune. You you've got the the good looking tenor who's in love with her mm. and trying to prove himself to her. Um, but, but then Margaret Dumont gets dropped and June McCloy gets added. Mm-hmm. The the naughty woman who's in collusion with the bad guy saloon owner is is not in uh Common Ruby's draft. And we should point out that the the um the villain is called John Higgins in this yes. film, which is about about as unwestern a name as you can possibly have, I think. <laughs> oh, big John. Well, I it, I think slightly less Western than that might be Antonio Giuseppe Luigi Ravelli. Um, <laughs> uh, strangely, there, there, there's, a, there's a bunch of Hedy Lamar jokes that Groucho makes, mm. in, which is... Hedley. Yes. I mean, Hed, yeah. yeah, Hedley Lamar keeps showing up on Blazing Saddle, so that, that, that's just an <laughs> odd coincidence. It's really interesting how much Harpo's Harp is integrated with the action here, too, more than in any of the films. Harpo's harp is often with him, or he employs it in various. He uses it as a bow to shoot arrows at one point. He uses it to accompany Chico's fortune telling stories. Um, it reminds me of the harp being visible in the paddy wagon in Horse Feathers, um, although nothing more is made of it there. Um, maybe that's a Kalmar and Ruby idea that the harp is. Um, I don't know. It's just with Harpo a lot more. It's it's like his sidekick in this screenplay. Yeah, and an- another gloriously horse feathersy moment that we we forgot to mention earlier at the end of the scene where um, Checo and Groucho are throwing things out of the window. Harpo comes in with everything that they've thrown out. On yeah, him. all the chairs and the typewriter and everything, and then he then goes straight to the window <laughs> and throws it out again, like the ice in horse feathers. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. That's good. Oh, also right out of horse feathers, Harpo is asked for a pick. And he takes a pig out of his coat. Yes. It's like the hug, yes. hog thing, and, and horse feathers. Uh, yeah, okay, thank I thank you. When I when I saw that pig, I was thinking like, wait a minute, I've seen I've seen this joke before. Yeah, okay, that that's where it was. Um, so I went into uh, my project wanting to see the the beginning of of the of the wonderful song "Go West, Young Man," which I'm a big fan of, and I've always loved that number in um, in Copacabana, especially because it's actually surreal because it's Groucho watching Groucho. I mean, when when Copacabana used to run on PBS when I was a kid, I knew how many minutes into the movie that <laughs> song was. So I would actually leave the room and then come back, you know, 52 minutes in or whatever it was. So the song is Go West, Young Man. It's a Western song. It's about the West. And Coleman Ruby had worked on a movie called Go West. So, of course, it's from their work. And then... You read this, and I, I, I read like seven or eight different versions of this of this cockamamie project, and that phrase never shows up. Um, at one point um, in my post, I said it didn't show up, and then I, I realized there's one stanza of the song that shows up, but it, 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 it's it's not it's it's not one of the good stanzas. It's just about the it's a stanza about a cowgirl. Yeah, it's it's the little middle section of the song, the, the part that begins, a cowboy's gal is a real true pal. Yeah, I, I was expecting full songs, maybe stupidly, I was expecting full songs to show up in the screenplays, because common Ruby are songwriters. But you just, you just get, get an indication that, oh, we'll figure out a song here. 
and because it, it, it doesn't have the key words, go west, young man, it, because it doesn't have that line, it's not even clear that they were going to go write that song. It makes the genesis of that, of that song more mysterious to me. Yes. The, the script's use of songs is, is strange, isn't it? That there's a, a moment where Groucho just bursts into song in a way that he, he never seems to do at MGM. And they've kind of given some lyrics, but they're, they're, you know, sort of, they're obviously a work in progress. And there's um, another reference to, uh, to a song title, which is then, you know, that's all you get is, is, is the title of the song, which you have looked into, Noah. Yeah, I have looked into this and I've gotten the kind of answers that only lead to more questions. I, I agree with, with your perception of it, that the script seems to have occasional indications of where songs will go and sometimes a few sketchy lines of lyrics. Uh, I think as far as Go West Young Man goes, this is only a guess based only on the material itself. But I don't think that song proper really existed yet when this script was written, because if they were thinking, well, we'll just put a little piece of it in here, surely it would have been, it would have included the title refrain. I think maybe this, what we have in the script, which is just the Cowboy's Gal part, maybe they were thinking, well, there'll be a song here called A Cowboy's Gal and Groucho will sing something about that. And then maybe later when they went to write the full song, they incorporated that fragment. Now, why they took on the, the assignment of writing that full song when it doesn't seem to have wound up in any of their drafts for this film is a, a bit of a mystery, but maybe it's just another Dr. Hackenbush situation. Even or, more or, or maybe it's because sorry, uh, or maybe it's because, as as Scott said, you know, they do have this unique status of being both comedy writers and songwriters. So it's possible that after their their draft was rejected and Brecker got the gig, they were still uh, uh, approached to write a song for it, which then didn't get used either. Yeah. <laughs> as as showmen. As salesmen, I, I, and, and as really talented guys, I, I, for the life of me, why didn't they write the full set of lyrics and for any song and put it into any of these drafts just because they tend to write very amusing lyrics, which read well on paper? I, 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 I just can't figure that part out. Why isn't it in the script? That's why it feels like such a standalone. And also like Dr. Hackenbush, it's a good Groucho song that incorporates elements of the film, but it could have and may have been written without any thinking about the plot of the film. I mean, Go West Young Man doesn't really make that much sense for the character or the situation in the same way that we've said Dr. Hackenbush song, much as we love it. The, the singer of that song knows he's a fraud and that Groucho in Day at the Races is always trying to prove that he's not a fraud. But you can cut a calf in half and make baloney. It's such a great line. And that line makes sense if you're writing Go West. That line has nothing to do with Copacabana. Why is Copacabana suddenly doing a Western number? Yeah, well, that could be any number, right? It's a it's a nightclub performance. Whereas, like Groucho's character in Go West, at no point would he be telling a young man to go west. I mean, I don't think we need these kind of justifications, but I think at MGM, maybe they thought they did, and that's why some of these songs didn't make it. But just to just to make this even more confounding, 
One of the song, one of the other songs mentioned in the draft that we read is a, called Hot Tamales. There are no lyrics. Kalmar and Ruby just say that a song called Hot Tamales is going to be performed. Well, they did take out a copyright on Hot Tamales. Oh, wow. I've never seen sheet music. I don't think it was ever recorded. But in June of 1939, so very much while they were working on this, they there was a, a copyright listing for a song called Hot Tamales from Go West by Bert Kalmar and Harry Ruby. And yet Go West, young man, wasn't copyrighted until 1947, the year of Copacabana and also the year Bing Crosby recorded it with the Andrews sisters. Oh, wow. It is possible that that song had nothing to do, nothing particularly to do with this film. And we've, we've, we've always just assumed it did because... It seems so obvious that it would, but I, I don't recall ever actually seeing any any claim or certainly any proof that it did. Yeah, well, but we we do have that one stan that one stanza is is in the other movie. Yeah, I, I wonder if MGM could have sued over that. Like we own that. Actually, I I, I looked. I I did my copyright search and I noticed that the song is copyrighted uh, Universal MCA Decca. Which which makes me even more confused. Hmm. The guys know how to write really funny lyrics, and and they they, they at the Indian Reservation, um, just out of the blue, uh, Groucho mentions that he's he's half Indian, and then he starts singing a song. My pa was red, my ma was white, and I was very blue. Three cheers for the red, white, and blue. Which which is 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 amusing. Maybe it's it's not politically correct in this day and age, but I'm, it's 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 fine for 1939. So it, it it sort of indicates to the reader this could be a funny song with funny lyrics and a funny gimmick, but they don't really do it at any other point in the script. Groucho could have had two songs in Go West. Could you imagine? Yeah. Okay. I, I'm now I'm now like looking looking through. Um, Looking through uh, these drafts, like like by the last draft, um, just in terms of the MGM desecration, in the original treatment, Groucho showed up on page one. By the final MGM draft, Groucho shows up on page 12, which is just horrible. Yeah. Horrible. Oh, there, there's this, this funny scene with Groucho um, meets Margaret Dumont. Noah, do you want to take a whack at it? <laughs> sure. Sure. Okay. What page are you on, Scott? I'm looking at page 15. Just before you do that, they're talking about the the desecration of the of the scripts. Um, mm. the, the, there is there is something intrinsically perverse, isn't there, about the idea that these great comedy writers sit down, write a comedy script, which they are then obliged to bring to the most humorless people on the planet, who then set about methodically ruining it and then they say to them go back and make it a bit worse so they make it a bit worse and then they come back and they say yeah you're right that is worse but i think we could make it even more worse go away and make it more worse so these poor comedy geniuses have to go away and make it more worse yeah well but this is welcome to hollywood friend <laughs> the first common ruby script from depending which note of mine i trust either march or april of 39 i i thought was dandy it would it would have made a a, 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 a terrific little marx brothers film and, and by the by the by the last script right before thanksgiving of 39 I, i've just sort of given up it's and you can sort of feel just just harry and bert just thrown in the towel it's just like whatever 
Why, why yeah. work for <laughs> Morgan Leroy or whoever was in charge of them at that point? Actually, I think you hit the nail on the head here. They had written a good Marx Brothers film, but they hadn't written a good MGM Marx Brothers film, which is what they were hired to do. Yeah, it's just it's, seeing how the treatments got better as they went along and the scripts got worse as they went along is just really sad. So you guys going to do a scene here for us? What's the, what's the deal? Yeah, let's try it. <laughs> I'll be I'll be Harpo. Yeah. So there's 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 Groucho is introduced as this as this sleazy lawyer. He's sometimes called Hack and Bush, uh, who uh, who is who is trying to to hustle every wannabe divorcee in this western town because you can get a quickie divorce in Nevada. And then he runs into uh, Mrs. Van Alstyne, who is Margaret Dumont. And he says. Put your case in my hands, and I'll have you divorced so quick it'll make your head swim. As I see it, your husband was a beast. What? Well, charge him with mental and physical cruelty, intoxication, and spending all his nights away from home, and I don't blame him. What are you talking about? I insist that you have complete custody of the children. I have no children. So, he denied you everything. The beast. Well, we'll fix him. I'll see that you get a handsome alimony, three squares a day, and a roof over your head. You'll do nothing of the kind. All right, if you want to walk around in the hot sun without a roof over your head, that's up to you. I don't want to discuss my affairs with you. What's more, I don't want to have anything to do with you. If you don't want to have anything to do with me, you've come to the right man. From now on, <laughs> you're in my hands. And it won't be long before you're in my arms. Now, see here, my husband has been dead for 15 years. Your husband's dead? Aha, now we've got something. We'll sue him for desertion. Haven't I made it plain I'm not interested in a divorce? Would you be interested in a nice piece of business property on the main street? Who are you anyway? Who am I? I'm your lawyer. And it's about time you paid your bill. <laughs> why, why are you wasting your time writing screenplay, Scott? <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I could be running around as the next Dame Edna. Yep. <laughs> it's sort of ironic that Kalmar and Ruby worked all this time on it. And when MGM got rid of them, they discarded all the jokes, but kept, you know, the basic premise. Uh, what they should have done is got rid of the premise and kept the jokes. Completely. Yeah, exactly. Like saying to Shakespeare, you know, we, we love this gloomy Dane, but... <laughs> <laughs> Forget all that poetry stuff, you know. <laughs> yes. Okay, to praise uh, Calmer and Ruby in terms of the old old school Groucho, there's there's a scene where uh, where where Maggie goes to Chico as the fake fortune teller. Yeah. And um, Chico is trying to hustle her into thinking she should marry Groucho, and uh, Chico's saying, "Oh, he's like looking in the crystal ball. Oh, I see him now. He's a, he's got a black mustache and he wears a glasses. Are you sure?" Uh, and he smoked a big, a big a cigar, a terrible cigar he smokes. And then we cut to Groucho. Terrible nothing. This is the best three, four dime cigar made. And then she overhears this. What was that? I don't hear nothing. That's a, your imagination. But I don't know anyone answering that description. And then Groucho just sort of shouts out, that's what you think. It's, it's paramount kind of stuff where he is interjecting into the middle of the con if she knew he were he were behind the te the curtain, then it would ruin everything. But he won't shut up. It's like him saying, "You don't know where to look in coconuts, isn't it?" Yeah, exactly. Yeah, right. He is deconstructing. It reminds me of the stateroom scene with the hard boiled mm -hmm. eggs and the honking. Yeah, yeah. But my, my joy, my joy in this scene is that it's it's Groucho deconstructing 
the the crime that he's a part of. Mm-hmm. Um, so so then Chico tries to charge her twenty dollars, and she's she is outraged, outraged. Well, five is all I'll pay. And then Groucho again sticks his head out. Between you and me, he'll take two. <laughs> and again, he's not supposed to be there. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then she turns around. What was that? You know. So that is old time Mark's humor. Yeah. Which which is a good thing. Um, I should so as we're dealing with that scene, there was one exchange in it which I couldn't make any sense of. But the first time I read it, it just made me laugh. And the more I think about it, the less sense it makes. I don't know if any of you can come up with anything, but um, obviously the 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 joke is that that Chico is prepped, so Chico knows loads of stuff about her. Um, that that she doesn't know he knows um and she thinks he's a a genuine fortune teller and she says to him you've convinced me more than ever that some people possess the power of extrasensory perception and chico says me too but i don't worry about that yes (laughs) (laughs) which is yeah Great, but I haven't got the first clue what that means. But it just—it's really funny, isn't it? It's like to, maybe it's like vaguely that to Chico that sounds like some kind of malady. Yeah, yeah I, I know I got all kinds of problems. <laughs> <laughs> that made me laugh too. A- another exchange I really love that sounds to me like one of those early Paramount lines that you always kind of enjoyed it, but years later from thinking about it a lot, it. it it becomes hilarious to you. So and it's kind of an incidental gag. Chico says, I got an idea. And Groucho says, beginner's luck. <laughs> <laughs> okay, let's jump ahead in the time frame a bit. After uh, Kalmar and Ruby leave the project, Irving Brecker is brought in and a road tour happens. Scott, I think you uh, have some notes about that. Okay, so Irving Brecker comes on. Um, there, there are there are mystery writers floating around. Uh, some guy named Al Mannheimer blows in and out. Uh, the writing team of uh, Jerome Chodorov and Joseph Fields blows in and out. Um, but uh, Irving Brecker writes his first draft with Dory Sherry, mm-hmm. and Dory Sherry was a, a bit of a legend. He had just uh, he just won an Oscar for writing a screenplay. Um, he was later so highly thought of he actually became a studio president. Uh, he was a producer, director, writer. I mean, he, he was very respected. So he wrote the first complete screenplay with Irving Brecker's name on it, with Irving Brecker. Uh, Irving then wrote a bunch of drafts solo. Then Nat Perrin came in, did some punch-ups, um, old friend of the Marxists. Uh, then they decided to do the road tour, which was you know a, a big deal to, to the guys. And uh, Dory Sherry's name is on the road tour script with the first draft with Irving. The road tour scripts, um, there was a lot of experimenting going on. Uh, the first draft I, I, I saw was 140 pages, which is really long. Um, for any Marx fans who've always wondered, they performed five scenes on the road. They performed the train station opening. They performed the stagecoach ride. They perform the saloon sequence, which then goes into a lot of music numbers. Um, I, I think I, th- I think there might have been a Chico number and a Harpa number in there. The breaking into the safe scene is done old school and so much better than in the movie because it's done a uh, split stage. So you actually see uh, Groucho and Chico and the girls on, on the left and Harpo on the right. 
Why on earth did they not do that in the film? It's inexplicable, isn't it? Yeah, they had the set built that way. Yeah, exactly. And then the fifth scene is the Indian reservation, which becomes a bit of an extravaganza. Mm-hmm. A, few, a few of my scribbles on the road tour. The train station scene was a constant fluid work in progress. Much, much longer. Went on forever. Lots of different runs of jokes they, they kept trying. Though the, the final version of, of dialogue that we hear in the movie was written by Nat Perrin. And it and isn't it strange that that Perrin, I think I'm right in saying, gets a story credit on Big Store, doesn't he? But he doesn't get any kind of credit on this film for writing the one scene that people like. Yeah. Yep. I think the Big Store yeah. he gets that credit because it's based on a Flywheel Shyster and Flywheel episode mm. that, yeah. that he and Sheikman wrote. Yeah. I I, I mean to be fair to Ir- Irving, uh, who I actually. Uh, one spent an afternoon with, so I, I got I got to meet old Irv. Irv Irv just kept throwing out version after version after version of train station jokes, and um, and 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 maybe maybe they felt you know he was young, he was green, and then and it wasn't it wasn't quite landing. And then Nat Aaron came in and he sort of figured out all right, this is the, this is the ten minute version that works, and I, I'm pretty sure line for line Nat Aaron's version is the movie version. Mm-hmm. Uh, confusing thing about the road tour script it has a bunch of physical jokes uh which would have had to have been rigged on stage and which is difficult to rig on stage and they're not in the movie um at, at one point in the uh in the train station scene um uh i don't know chicken and harper for some reason give groucho a musket can't remember why and then it discharges and there's a big explosion at another point they like talk him in, in, into buying a bear trap mm-hmm. and then the bear trap snaps on him and again, this this is physical humor, but just it's hard to rig that stuff on stage, you know, four shows a day. Mm, yeah. You know, uh, uh, at the very end of the safe scene, uh, Harpo sets off, um, I guess, dynamite or something, and and the fireplace collapses, and that's the that's like the big closer of the scene. Mm-hmm. And then the audience probably would explode with laughter at this, at, you know, seeing the set collapse in front of them, and then the curtain mm-hmm. would drop. Mm-hmm. That's not in the movie. Very strange. Very strange. It's it's, it's strange uh, to those who've always wondered. Uh, it, it, it would seem that the uh, stagecoach was on some kind of rockers, because the script refers to the coach sort of bouncing around and, and hitting a couple bumps. Mm-hmm. There, there's a, there's a narrator who uh, some kind of voice of God who kind of explains uh, what what the hell is happening here and what the plot is and probably talks too much about a about a missing deed. Mm-hmm. The Indian camp ends with a with a big war dance uh which then becomes a, a real uh, <laughs> this is real 1940s kind of nonsense uh, it becomes a conga number and then it, <laughs> and then it's, it's indians and and marx is all dancing in a big conga and then that's and that's the that's the 11 o'clock number noah <laughs> yeah. and then uh then it ends uh, besides the the, the 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 drafts of the tour, I found a great uh, MGM document, which is just so weird. This is, this is a sort of document that screenwriters have nightmares about, like not knowing what studios do behind your back. Um, it, was a, it, was a, it was an MGM laughter guide, uh, rating the <laughs> laughter in the, in the theater, poor jokes. And uh, I'm, I'm quoting it. One X means a chuckle. Two X's means a giggle. Three X's. They were holding their sides. <laughs> I, 
I don't know who this scientist is who was sitting. I mean, you know, we all know, you know, we heard stories about like, you know, Maury Riskin in the back of the theater, you know, with a, with a stopwatch timing jokes. I don't know how this guy was gauging whether they giggled or held their sides. Um, strangely, uh, two jokes actually went off the chart. I'll watch my money. You watch him. You must have given it to yourself. Well, somebody's given it to me, which is a little, it sounds a little filthy on some level. That got four X's. Was that um, holding the side or what's, what's four X's again? Four, four X's, no, four X's is not on the grid. The grid stops at three X's. Off the charts, funny. Off the charts, yeah. It's off the chart. And then the ending of, of the scene where Harpo takes the scissors and cuts Groucho's pants. Five X's, holy cow. Whoa. <laughs> holy cow. Holding not only their sides, but the side of the person sat next to them. <laughs> yeah. Um, um, I, I, my, my final wrap-up here is then there are these really grim reshoot pages. So in, 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 the, in the business, you, you make the movie, and then, you, and then you drive out to Glendale or Long Beach or somewhere where supposedly non-film folk live, and <laughs> you, you show them the movie, and then, and then they fill out cards. Most movies I've worked on, the people who make the movies don't really give a shit about these cards. Uh, we, we, uh, we always find the focus groups really interesting, which is 20 people who each get paid $50 to sit at the front of the theater and talk about the movie. Mm -hmm. and, and that's kind of intriguing. But what people write on the cards is just, who cares? Who cares? Well, clearly, some moron watched the movie and wrote <laughs> this card, I don't understand this deed plot. If the Marxists have the deed, why are the bad guys racing to New York? Because to beat them, because they don't have the deed anymore. And clearly, this got like the upper management and the front office and and some sweaty, stupid MGM DP who, who's worried he's about to lose his job. This is gonna make or break the film. Because the audience literally doesn't know what's happening during the climax. Now it means that one. One jerk off. He was probably in the bathroom when it got explained, and, and but he wrote it on the card. And so, poor Irving Brecker. At this point, I, I'm feeling sorry for Irving. He has right. He ends up writing two different scenes because it's it's panic at MGM. The movie's opening in six weeks, and we got like we got one day where we can get the guys back on the set, and we got to shoot it. Irving writes two different scenes where Groucho rehashes the entire deed plot. Um, in, in one version, he's talking. I don't even remember who, who he's talking to. In, the, in one version, he's talking to the totem pole. So <laughs> there's that totem pole at the reservation where we, where they, where you look over and the totem pole looks like Groucho Marx. So they actually, poor Irving actually had to write a, a script. I wrote this down where Groucho says to the totem pole, they want the railroad to buy their land instead of Dead Man's Gulch. He's saying this to a piece of wood. <laughs> so. I, I, I hope they did not make Groucho say this line and shoot it. It's not in the movie. <laughs> um, it, uh, the, re, the reshoot pages could have been just like panic central. You know, maybe the movie's not testing uh, testing well. Um, strangely, one very long reshoot got in, uh, written by, this could be the only female screenwriter on a Mark film I know of, Marguerite Roberts. Uh, Marguerite Roberts, who I'd never heard of before I, I did my project, later became a, a big... She became a big writer of westerns, uh, most famously True Grit, which, which is True Grit is a major movie. But she wrote a lot of those like late '60s, like Henry Fonda, Jimmy Stewart kind of westerns. Mm -hmm. So I mean, she's the real deal. So again, MG must have panicked that oh, you know, 
the, the, the women aren't responding to the movie. Only the men are giving us high, high scores. So mm. we need more love story, more love story. We need a humdinger of an opening love scene. And so um, you got Eve at the mirror and she's like thinking about Terry. And then Terry r rides up on a horse. And I love you, darling. I love you, darling. All that oh, stuff. Yes, I was holding my sides. So she actually wrote the part where the horse's head came between the camera and the actors. She is to be thanked for the for the biggest laugh in the film. Yeah, uh, that is interesting though. The only female writer who ever worked on a Marx Brothers project is that. I guess that must be the case. I, I, again, I, I I've never pulled drafts on other Marx scripts, so I, I I can't I can't speak for other movies. Yeah, maybe there are others, you know, lurking, you know, unknown as as she was. But yeah, so far as we know. It's certainly in, in the sexism of the time, it, it's, it's, it's sort of berserk that she's, she's not being asked to write even one joke. Yeah. We need love, honey. More love. <laughs> okay, enough with this Go West crap. Um, Scott, you were in this Academy Library with all these documents and film experts. Now, what did you find out about the manicures? Tell me you got <laughs> something. Yeah, I, I ended up uh, talking to the head of special collections and who just came over and he he saw my name on the on the check-in list and he recognized my name and he came over to introduce himself and say hi and say if there's anything special you need and I go well strangely enough I'm here for go west but um um are you familiar with the Marx Brothers Night at the Opera stateroom scene and it turned out he's a giant he's a giant Marx fan and uh and so he basically uh, he knew who the he knew about the manicures <laughs> <laughs> and this guy runs runs special collections, and and so on his own volition, he started pulling. Um, I'm probably going to get him fired when they find out he was doing this. Uh, <laughs> he just started trying to pull all the paperwork he could. Um, he did pull me a casting sheet from the movie, um, which had about 25 names on it, and did not have the manicures on it. Um, it had almost. Uh, I think it. I, I think it might have had every speaking part except for the manicurist and the engineer's assistant. Um, I believe everyone else is there, and there were and there were a bunch of Italian ladies. So I'm assuming we're in the uh, Italian opening. Mm -hmm. And and then and then on the MGM internal casting document, Lorraine Bridges as Louisa was listed under the word leads. I don't even know who she is, which I I, I just found perplexing. So anyway, my 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 new friend at, at the library, he pulled up all paper. They had, they didn't have that much. They had publicity materials, which don't help. Um, he said, uh, he said, if I want, I can try USC Special Collections. They've got they've got great stuff, but I haven't been down to SC in a while. He said all production materials, meaning daily call sheets, which is where we would find her used to be in a warehouse in Culper City, and when Ted Turner bought MGM back in the 80s, for some reason, because Ted is a bit of a nut, he had all of that stuff shipped to Atlanta. Why Ted wanted call sheets from movies made in the 30s, I don't know, but everything is in Atlanta, so there is some kind of uh, a Turner-MGM archive in Atlanta, and if any listeners want to go knock on their door the call sheets are probably there well there's a lead we haven't heard before anybody listening if you are in or near atlanta georgia uh let's get on this yeah 
what drives me nuts is, is is somebody out here knows this and they don't realize it, it's a, an, an issue. I mean, I, I wrote a book a couple of years ago about about the 1931 Dracula and the the one of the key scenes in the film where where Bela Lugosi bites this flower seller in London. Um, this 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 role was attributed to to a, an actress called Anita Harder, um, and I was able to I found an old. Um, clipping and i was able to show that it was actually a, a british actress called bunny beatty uh, and and um and changed the changed the record and we found her um grandchildren and they said oh yeah we knew that we knew that was yeah she often she often talked about being a drag and and i said well surely she must have known that she wasn't getting the credit for that that this other woman was getting the credit i said oh no no we never really we never really looked into it you know so somewhere out there you know the manicurists uh grandchildren uh, you know uh, are absolutely certain in their knowledge that it's her and they just don't know that it's an issue <laughs> somewhere out there there's somebody who if you were in their living room they'd say oh yeah i have humor risk why do you want to watch it <laughs> <laughs> I tried. I think I think the trail went dead on your manicures at the at the film academy. Um, I mean, you know, he he pulled he pulled out lots of publicity material, and I said, you know, she's she's not going to be in publicity material. Uh, and then, you know, in in photographs, she, she wasn't ID'd. Right. So yeah. maybe there was no manicurist. I think I think you have to go into into the salt mine in Atlanta to get it. Yeah, yeah. it's your imagination. <laughs> Well, Scott, we wanted to th thank you so much for joining us. Um, um, obviously, next month we'll be doing the third of our trilogy on Go West. And maybe you'll come back for that. Yeah, I, I, I would love to do an episode about that set where, where Harpo and Chico are, are digging holes. And it. it looks like a set we would have in my junior high school. <laughs> it's so cheap. Monogram. <laughs> Thanks again, Scott. And as always, we're going to hand it off to you. So you can introduce our closing song. Um, well, I'll just go with uh, one of my favorite Common Ruby songs. Let's hear Go West, Young Man. Before you go to Buffalo, to Baltimore, or Borneo, to eastern Pennsylvania or Sudan, go west, young if you go to that land, Sonny, you will have a lot of money If you bring the money with you when you come To the long prairie Yippee-yee-yippee-yee-yippee-yee-yee-yee-yee-yee-yee-yee-yee-yee-yee-yee-yee-yee-yee-yee-yee-yee-yee-yee-yee-yee-yee-yee-yee-yee-yee-yee-
south, don't go east, have a care. Don't go up, don't go down, don't go here, don't go there. If you are fond of hunting, there's no place that can compare. You may not bag a lion or a tiger or a bear, but if you want a jackass, there are plenty of them there. Go west, young man. California when the clouds are breaking loose and you complain about the rain they give you this excuse it isn't raining rain you know it's raining orange juice go west young man the judges there are very fair they always are of course the cowboy and his missus went to court for a divorce the cowboy got the children and the missus got the horse go west young man go out and till the soil there dig for gold and you'll find oil there when the snow flies as the crow flies go westward home if there's a cattle shortage which can happen like as not and they can't find a hunk of meat to chuck into the pot they sit around and beef about the beef they haven't got go away Brothers Council podcast is produced and edited by Bob Gassell. Matthew Cunningham's books, The Annotated Marx Brothers, and That's Me Groucho are published by McFarland. Noah Diamond's book, Give Me a Thrill, The Story of All Say She Is, is published by Bear Manor Media. For more info on this and all episodes, visit our website at MarxBrothersCouncilPodcast.com. Also look for us on Twitter. And for the place to talk Marx and meet fellow fans, join us on the lively Marx Brothers Council Facebook group. See you next time!